Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to The Book Pod with Corey Perkin, the fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boon Oorang Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hello everyone, Cory Perkin with you for another episode of The Book Pod and our guest today is Chloe Hooper, one of Australia's great literary talents, a writer who is deeply admired by her contemporaries and colleagues as well as her legion of fans, most of whom have stuck like glue since her first novel, A Child's Book of True Crime, arrived in 2002. And that novel, of course, as we know, was shortlisted for Britain's prestigious Orange Prize for Literature, which is now known as the Women's Prize. Those of us who have followed Chloe's publishing career hold close her astounding non-fiction work as well, The Tall Man, The Arsonist, and more recently her 2022 Walkley Award-winning essay for The Monthly, which was a terrific profile on federal independent senator Jackie Lambie, riveting as it was insightful. Chloe's two novels also remind us of the range of her storytelling skills and the bold landscape of her imagination. But in 2018, a family trauma left Chloe unable to find the right words. On one level, Bedtime Story, her new book, is a terrific provocation to consider the impact of fairy tales and adventure stories on children. But Bedtime Story is so much more than an anthology of children's books. In 2018, Chloe's partner Don Watson, also a highly respected and decorated writer, was diagnosed with a rare form of leukaemia. The prognosis was grim, and for the next few weeks, Don and Chloe had to think about how best to tell their young sons how to tell them while enabling the children to stay firmly planted in a busy and happy childhood of make-believe games, imaginary characters, playing in the backyard with friends, and having bedtime stories read to them each night by their parents. Chloe turned to the giants of children's publishing for advice. The brothers Grimm, Louisa May Alcott, Lewis Carroll... J.R.R. Tolkien, J.K. Rowling and a raft of other well-known writers. She wanted to discover how in their stories these writers handled death. This was one story Chloe Hooper was unable to tell. Her grief and her anxiety did not afford her the writer's distance. Perhaps then other writers might be able to help. 
Chloe, welcome to the Book Pod. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on Bedtime Story. It is it is an amazing read. I don't know what genre I would put it under, but I think I settle firmly in the memoir camp because your life, Don's life, the boy, the life of the two boys as you went through this awful time is so rich and real. And sometimes we say truth is stranger than fiction. And I wondered when you look back on that time, how you contemplate it, what you think of it now with the distance of three or four years? Well, I suppose that the whole world actually, you know, Don, Don went into remission in late 2018 and then by early 2020, the whole world was sort of faced with some of the existential questions that I guess that we, we dealt with um, while he had cancer and we were suddenly sickness and isolation and those 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 questions of how to talk to kids about the light and dark were all over the world with um, living through through plague. Were you writing bedtime story as lockdown was occurring? That's right. We we I would get up and and write and then you know do our homeschooling so that you know in a way the book even though it talks about uh, difficult things was actually a kind of escape for me, or the books, all and the books that I was writing about as well. Well, the books, the books that you you were writing about, I want to talk about them in a little while. I can only imagine that your bookcase of children's book has uh, incrementally grown. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was, you know, what we Don and I, neither of us could resist children's books because they're so beautiful, Corrie, as you know, better than you know anyone. And but now, I, unfortunately, I can't pretend that I'm buying them for the kids anymore. I mean, I, I'm 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 getting them for me. Well, I am in awe of them, and I have been writing Mr. Kitten Goes to Town for, I reckon, maybe seven or eight years now, and he's still at home. He hasn't walked out the front gate yet. So, <laughs> so that's well, so that's, you know, it's a big world. The ha- the home is a big world. Well, we haven't we haven't got out th- we haven't got out the front gate, Chloe. But but thanks for the encouragement, and I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to go home as soon as we finish our chat. Can you just set the scene for us uh, that awful day when you and Don were in the doctor's office and he revealed to you the health prognosis and how old your boys were then, and had they had any other previous experiences of loss or grief or dying? Our boys were 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 three and six, and Don had gone for a routine che- checkup, and he he discovered that he had his blood cells didn't didn't look quite right, and went for another te- test, and and it appeared to be uh, initially it appeared to be CLL, which is a, a very common blood cancer, and uh, the, this was not going to be be fatal. We were told. And could be managed with medication, and then it emerged that actually it was a it was a, a far more rare and, and and dangerous type of um, leukemia. He had to be special, so it was a um, any warnings, tiredness, uh, not feeling him quite oh, look, himself. I mean, I think anyone who has you know uh, a three and a six year old uh, you know feels tired, and 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 Don, you know, had did have time on his side. Uh, he's an older dad, so you know, I think he just felt that that he was. He was tired because of of, of um, getting up in the night to small people who are having nightmares, etc. But you know, there was more. There was more going on. And the boys. We'll talk a minute, again in a minute about how you actually raised the issue with him. But I wondered when you were 
when you immersed yourself in the literature and you were seeking answers, ideas, stimulation, did you were you constantly applying your children to the narrative that you were reading? Were they foremost in your mind or did you just kind of let it go, let Don's illness go? Did you just immerse yourselves self in the books to try and find a way forward? Well, I, I think that it was both. I think the reading was strategic and then I think that these a lot of children's literature is about escape and enchantment and so – I couldn't help also being uh, escaping uh, through these stories. And so I was very much reading f- with my children in mind, but I suppose the, the, the pleasures and consolations of these books aren't just for, for children. And, uh, you know, who needed the story more, them or me? I, I think we, we probably both did. And as I as I kept reading and and found that a lot of our most beloved children's authors and and our, our best known children's authors from the Brothers Grimm through to Hans Christian Andersen, uh, Francis Hodgson Burnett, L. M. Montgomery, uh, C. S. Lewis, Tolkien, Dahl, Philip Pullman, they all suffered a, 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 the loss of a parent in childhood, and so actually it's I started to realize that perhaps. An ingredient of enchantment is grief. Well, it, it's certainly a part of some of those stories that you mention. Uh, I mean, there are just little women, even Paddington without Lucy, the separation and the sadness that comes through the Paddington Bear books. And C.S. Lewis is is a kind of a master when we all think that Aslan has been killed by the White Witch. It's very traumatic. But we all seem to handle it at the time. Well, we didn't yeah. have parents. <laughs> I mean, I'm older than you, but I'm thinking back to my parents. No one said oh, warning, warning, be careful, this book, no. the main character dies and no. then is resurrected. Yes, but I think that uh, storytelling has always been a way that children were able to to actually practice these difficult emotions. So they're sort of these tales are simulations of how people deal with difficult things and these these stories allow us safely to experience situations that are hard and they, they, they stand us in good stead. I was surprised as you were clearly as you were researching uh, and you mentioned it before that you, you had a shift in your study of these books from the children's books themselves to the people who wrote them. Yes. And you uncovered these extraordinary links and similarities amongst a lot of them which is a loss of a parental parents at a very early age which makes me wonder when they become the adult writer are they nostalgic for a childhood that they once had long ago or perhaps never had but imagined what childhood might look like if it was perfect. Well, Tolkien talks about starting The the Lord of the Rings as an antidote. He, he talks about starting The Lord of the Rings as a way of trying to recapture the happy childhood he'd had before he was orphaned because his father died when he was quite young and then his mother as well. So. I think that there's very often in these stories, these authors are sort of recreating a lost Eden and uh, C.S. Lewis plants a, a tree with bearing silver apples to take so that a, a, one of the children can take them back to their, their ill mother who is then cured. And, and of course, that's something that he wasn't able to do in his own life. So 
there's a sense in these stories that the authors are, are sort of remaking the dark or, or having a conversation with it. And perhaps for those who are in extremists, these stories have a special extra meaning for them and can, and can console them as well. As you're doing your research and trying to find the way forward to tell your children, Chloe, I don't want to present you in any shape or form as overtly ambitious, but did you have a book in mind? Did you, you were taking notes for all the right reasons and to try and make sense of it, but did you, did you think there might be something in this, there might be something worthwhile in this? Well, I mean, I guess, Corrie, when, you know, when and when one person in a partnership is, is ill, you know, it's, it's expensive to be, to get sick. And so, you know, of course there was part of my, in part of my mind, I was thinking, how how are we going to keep this sort of show on the road? And I'm a writer, so was Don working on a book at the time? Don wasn't very; he was, but he wasn't well. I mean, it, it really he wasn't in a state to to work. So, and I and I guess you know it was ter- it was it's terrifying in that situation because it's a I don't I didn't know if he was actually going to finish the book because you know there was a a, a real chance he wasn't going to get better. So um, it must be so hard because your focus is completely on your your job. Their job is to get through the illness and all of its side effects of the of the treatment. Your job is to support your partner as well as the children and keep the home fires burning, plus be the breadwinner, which is difficult. Well, you don't. You have to sort of stop thinking too much about the future. You don't know what the future is going to hold, and none of us know what the future will hold. So uh, that was a a lesson to um, to stay in the present tense. But very early I felt that if this was, that I couldn't be the only person who was grappling with this conversation, who who needed to, to broach this with their, their children, this subject. Because, you know, the reality is nobody knows what will happen to us and it's much better to talk to kids about about mortality and about... To death, because then you can actually start talking about you know how how will we best live, and children are natural philosophers. They love, you know, discussing sort of life's biggest mystery. So actually, it's it's an important conversation to have and not to shy away from. And it's a rich conversation to have. But I felt that I wouldn't be the only person who'd be interested in this. So I sort of felt that there was something something in the subject but I that you know initially I just thought oh perhaps I'll, I'll write a, a short sort of pamphlet like book which is about 20,000 words and then it, and then it grew into into something bigger. So you're taking notes and you're thinking and you're contemplating and at the time that it actually is you you both raise it with your boys your eldest one first a few days and a bit of time's gone by. A lot because, of time. Yeah, we, we waited not hard really. To, yeah. We waited too long. Really. Do you think? I think so. Oh, I think interesting. that when you have a secret, you know, with with children in a house, I think it does sort of grow. And I think that we, you know, that we had to also have a, a shift in our thinking. It was it was such a sort of Anglo idea that you know you don't talk about death and and that their their ch- ch- childhoods are going to be ruined by you know bringing this up, which which is is ridiculous. I mean, life is 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 good and bad. It's always going to be light and dark, and you can't sort of like pretend there's not sort of you know scary or difficult things. So, by trying to kind of 
you know, shove it out of sight. I think we did them a disservice because we were sort of, you know, playing this sort of game of everything's fine and, and of, you know, sotto voce conversations and... Um, and tears, and, I imagine, too. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, f- and fear. Yeah. Don's fear, your fear. Absolutely. It's hard to disguise that. It's hard to disguise that. And so then I think that the children still pick up on pick up on all of that and, and sometimes invent a kind of worse narrative. But yeah, I when actually sort of being open about this was uh was was a was a sort of was a big relief. How did you I know because I've read the book, but for those who haven't, how did you tackle it? Because it seemed to be quite spontaneous at the time it happened, actually, even though you'd been thinking about it for a few weeks. Well, we knew that we had to tell our, our, our kids because Don was about to go and have chemotherapy. And I think there are a couple of sort of really important things to say. There are some fantastic resources about how to manage these conversations. And, and the Victoria Council, uh, Council has, a, has great advice online for those who might need it. But I think the, the, the key piece of advice is to tell the truth, but, but to keep it simple. Which, um, dare I say, is the hallmark of both your writing and Don's. Well, it's also the hallmark of, of, of good children's books, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Just sort of distill the message to uh, what's essential, almost like a poem. Mm-hmm. I was interested, Chloe, that with all the books that you read, you didn't find the one statement or the story or the moment or the thing but it seemed I suppose like a good journalist and going back to old feature writing days when the topic is this and you'd write you'd read a hundred different resources and interview 50 people to do with the topic and then you'd push all that aside off your desk and you'd start writing and you'd be writing on a platform of knowledge and information and it felt to me like that's where your language with the children came from. All of the things that you'd been reading just started to be yeah. part of your language. Absolutely. And I think that there isn't sort of there wasn't one perfect book to, to read to the kids, but you know, I would have now read kind of twenty picture books which talk about illness and 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 death and, and grief. With them, even if it's talk, if it's sort of you know mentioned in a really through about a message about love, and and I think that introducing some of those stories into kids' literary diets early, before the kind of seemingly worst thing happens, so that they've got some way of understanding this subject, that it can actually be, you know, helpful to them, but it can spark important conversations that that are rich, and. Those, stero- those stories helped me too. That, that was, that was they, you know, storytelling is a, a way of stories can entertain us and educate us and, and, and console us and, and this is what this sort of rich body of literature did. Your oldest son has just started school at the time of Don's diagnosis and the younger one hasn't yet. Uh, the older one, like all prep and grade one and grade two children, is obsessed by the real world, the facts of history. And all of a sudden at the kitchen table, he's discussing with you both the tombs of the Egyptian oh. kings and queens, mm. kings, and, and how bodies are, they think are kept alive and what happens. And, and there's almost an, I, I actually went back to my seven and eight year old self. I admit completely obsessed by Egyptology when I was young. But I thought that was a really interesting – it presented a really interesting challenge for you guys. 
because what he's reading and telling you, you and Don have your own private conversation going on about, oh, gosh, this is, this is awkward, this is weird, this is – we haven't told him yet and – I think it's actually at the po- at that point he knew that his dad was unwell. Oh, did but, he? I'm yeah. sorry. No, no, that's okay. But yes, he was um, he was reading us sort of to us about you know he he brought home a reader that he picked out which went into detail about sort of the embalming process and and the afterlife which he was he was reading that to his dad and you know it was perhaps not the most kind of. Uh, comforting read for for Don in that moment sort of very sick from the chemo drugs but you know that's that's interesting too the the conversations about what happens to us and you know that we 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 spoke a lot about what what different cultures believe heaven pop heaven pops into your conversation heaven, heaven pops in that's right and indigenous australians believe you return to your your homeland and Buddhist, buddhists think something else and and so you know, it, it, cancer can be educational. <laughs> You're listening to The Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together. Well, there's another side story that's travelling along for the first part of the book anyway, and a friend of your son at school, his father also receives an awful diagnosis. That was very uncanny. My my son's best friend's father was diagnosed a few weeks before Don was and that was in March of 2018 and he passed away in November of that year. So we were really acutely aware of of the other ending of this story. By By the end of that year, Don was in remission and he's still very thankfully in remission. But... You know, once you once you enter these waters, uh, you know any anything, anything can happen, and we 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 feel very, gosh, that boy remains my my son's best friend, and um, I guess their their friendship is is very sort of deep, and they they have a lot of love for each other because of knowing, going through this experience together. Well, that leaps off the page, Chloe, the love that they have for one another and your son trying to, and you, with your help too, work out what to say and how to, how to be, how just how to be together. And That's to right. I mean, and I, I think that we, we don't, we don't, because we're so awkward as a, as a society often around, around death, we don't kind of, you know, it's a rare person who can actually fa- face this and em- and embrace those who are mourning and and say the right thing and be there and turn up. And I think it's really tough then for kids at school who who turn up and nobody mentions their their parents' names. And I think there's a sort of hangover from the from adults' awkwardness around around children, which is. Which is which is sad, but their their mum is amazing, and they have had the most sort of phenomenal guide through this experience. I was really drawn to that story as a side story. I, I imagine, of course, they were very comfortable with you writing about it. As I was reading it, I went back to my fourteen year old self, which is how old I was when my father died, 
and going to school four days later after funerals and no one at school talking about it. No teachers. No one keeping – well, one teacher, that's unfair. One teacher pulled me aside and had a big talk about, you know, you must always come to my office and, and that was incredibly heartwarming. But nobody at school talked to talked about it. Yes. And you then became the weird kid. Yes. And I think I was probably the weird kid for the next three years. I didn't know that that had happened to you and uh, I'm I'm – I'm so sorry. It's such a formative age, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, it, it is. It's like you know, losing your parent again, though, because it, suddenly they're erased, you know, in this, no one in talks this other about way. Them. And, you, and, you, and some, you've done something wrong or it's kind of shameful that they died. Mm. And that's, isn't that horrific mm. in our culture that we, we treat mortality as the most natural thing that's going to happen to all of us in, in such a weird, awkward, repressed way? I tell you what, at the Christmas table in, you know, after I've died, and if somebody raises the glass and says, oh, here's to absent friends and don't say, oh, here's to Corrie, wasn't she always fun singing the Christmas carols? I'll be furious. Yeah, how dare they? But that's what people do. They put, <laughs> they put the layer of we won't go into that territory. And, and yes, Chloe, that's, that's you, too sad. And, Chloe, you do, and you do it with courage, and it's really it – it's is—it's a really – it's not only a beautiful book, Chloe, but it's an important book. And I think people, anybody who, it's not even just about if you're, you or your partner are diagnosed with cancer, you must read Chloe's book. It's not even that. It's just, it's about kids trying to make their way and understand we think complex. But you said earlier, it's just what life's all about. These issues that just, that's what life is. It's filled with curveballs. Yes, that's and right. I hate, I hate hearing the, the conversation about children being so resilient, but they're human and all humans can kind of take on, take it on. That's right. Well, I, I look, I think that how do you talk to, to kids about hard times generally? I, I mean, how, how do you – but it's, it, it applies to us too, doesn't it? How do we restory traumatic events? How do we find a way to weave our, you know, straw, which might be – feel a bit sort of poop-flecked with, into gold? Like, you know, can we take these stories and – and find meaning in our lives. Because what's interesting to me is actually, you know, a lot of us were very serious readers as children with our sort of torches, you know, under the covers. And actually these stories I found when I was reading them when I was in a d- difficult moment reconnected me to that that child reader. And I, I love, Curry. you've said, you know, this took me back to being... 11 or 14 or or because these books actually often are written for a child reader but also for that child when they've become an adult. And so there's something about reconnecting with these books and with ourselves as children which actually is also very rich. So in a way it's not, you know, I don't want this just to be a book for people with kids. It's also for those who've got no kids but actually remembered loving books. It's for everybody, Chloe. So when you were working at this time, um, back in 2018, were you actually working on, it was around the time The Arsonist came out from Yeah, that came out that year. So you didn't have a project that you were meeting a deadline with because you were between books, would that be right? Uh, the, well, the I, I really wanted to finish the the arsonist and and have that book out because I didn't know what was going to happen and I wanted sort of to be have no obligations in case the kids really really needed you know my my full attention. But when things when we when we had a a, a better 
better outcome, um, I, I threw myself into writing this. This is a really um, sort of dim question, I guess, but I'm really interested. As I was reading this book, I kept asking myself, why did you write it? Well, I wrote this book because I, it's, it's written in the second person for, for my oldest son. Well, I shall quote Christos Schlokas uh-huh. uh, on the back of the cover here of this edition. I have a love letter to family and to literature <laughs> And Christos adds, I was profoundly moved and profoundly grateful. It is a love letter and it's a love letter. You, you write as though you're writing a letter to your eldest son, mm, which that's is right. a great, great style. And I imagine you landed on that pretty quickly as but, the way to go. Yes, I, I, I wanted to explain to him this moment in, in time. And I mean, I, I talk a lot about myth in, in this book and uh, what sort of what is it recurs in 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 so many myths in so many cultures but also in children's stories is the idea of traveling to the underworld and and the hero gets to come back i think that one way that we get to commune with with the dead is actually through reading and you can pick up a book by Roald Dahl and his radiance and humour and, and wit and wisdom is there on the page. And I guess if you've got it, if you, you know, for my kids, both of their parents are writers, even if we're not with them one day, they'll be able to find us on the shelf and, and meet us again. In your writing over the years, Chloe, you've inserted yourself in, self in different parts of the nonfiction that you've written and... Usually it's, it, it's as that detached observer, certainly tall man and, and the arsonist, and we feel your presence, but, it, it, but it's not about you. This book is very much about you. Was that difficult? I don't sort of think too much about it, to be honest with you. I, I, I sort of just... The words tumbled out. Uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I just wanted it to be a, you know, it's almost like when you're writing a, a book, you're kind of building a... a a boat or something. I sort of, you know, wanted to sort of be able to sail it, for, for it to be able to sail itself from sort of, you know, A to Z. And so, you know, there I was with my kind of hammer and planks of wood and I, I wasn't sort of thinking, you know, too much about how much I was exposing or not. And that's funny. Some people have found that, you know, some people have said, oh, I felt like I was sort of staring in your windows. <laughs> and that's strange. I, I sort of think... I, you know, stare away. I mean, it's sort of my 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 kind of focus is really on you know, will this will this sort of have I built something that will sort of sail over the over these sort of waters? The for, you know, sail a reader over the waters. I, I, that might sound strange, but I, I just don't. I'm sort of just thinking, it does the book work? And that's I'm. It's kind of almost functional, I suppose, rather than thinking too much about. Well, I think, How the, for- I come I think across. the form and the words just write themselves a bit, Kind don't of, they? kind of. You know, well, that sounds like it's sort of automatic writing. I mean, of course, there's just so much redrafting, but... But you found your voice. You landed yeah, on your voice. Yeah, and that's, you know, I, I told the story I wanted to tell. Yeah. So I saw Don not long ago and, well, I greeted him with with a flood of tears, which was probably a little embarrassing for both of us because <laughs> and all I could say was I didn't realise what you'd gone through. But once I'd mopped up the tears... I said to him, is this something that you ever feel that you would write about? And he just shook his head no. Yes. And I know I've read other interviews and you've said different times that it was a little bit of a race to see who might kind of get to it. But I wondered whether, in fact, that might be something, given the trauma, and I can't imagine, of 
being told this is what's happening inside your body and you have no control over it, whether that is a difficult thing, space for him to go to in the near future. I don't think he will write about this. I, I, I think that there's a sort of actually also the – we have a, um, an amazing capacity as, as humans to look forward and, and to sort of delete sometimes, you know, what's quite traumatic. So, you know, he, he really was very sick and he sometimes doesn't remember actually that. And I think that that's a, you know, if you, if you that's a kind of survival mechanism just to, to, to keep going. Chloe, let's talk about Jackie Lambie. Let's change oh, yeah. tack completely All right, let's here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so congratulations on winning the Walkley oh, Award this year. Oh, thank you. Thank you. She's an extraordinary character on our political landscape. I'm fascinated by her and I have mm. to say I'm a bit of a fan because mm. she's, she appears to be so honest yes. and real. And your style of writing it was, I felt, no, you didn't make huge editorial judgments. You followed her and you allowed the reader, you mm. gave us, you entitled us to actually make the call on how we felt about that. Mm. But those long forms of journalism, those four, five, six thousand word pieces that you do for the monthly and different publications, you must, you must just love them. Are they? <laughs> I used to hate them. Not that I wrote four thousand words, but if, it, if I was told I had two thousand words on a page, I fainted uh, before I began. It used what, to be what did you, What did you like? What word length did you like? Uh, well, I grew to like two thousand words when I was okay. at the Weekend Australian, but. I always felt very comfortable with about a thousand words yep. because then I would always write fifteen hundred or eighteen hundred, and then it was a case of kill you darlings. Yep. Much happier with the editing yep. process, but when it's a longer form, I always felt oh, I have to say more important things. It was like the quantity of the words mm. was about the quality of the production, which is crazy, really. You know, you can write if you have a story, a news story, and it's three hundred words. It has to be. Yes. Has to say as much. Yeah, yeah. But recently at the Melbourne Writers' Festival, you you were with Helen Garner, mm. which was a much lauded and popular and wonderful event. And you have over the years, I hate the word compared, but you've it's like you're kind of soul sisters in a way, following a similar trajectory. I wondered what it was about that long-form journalism that you love. Well, I, I like the I like being able to expand because I and I like the the way that in in when you have a longer word length, some of the details of a story, you know, you you can explore a little bit more for their meaning because I think uh, which is what you did with Jackie. Yeah, you're sort of you know you you get to be a little bit of a kind of closet psychoanalyst and and think about you know her her, her, her the dog that she has uh you know is a, a beautiful dog called luna who's a rescue dog who belongs to her son and and in that piece the dog becomes quite important and i, I suppose if if you you know with, with with a thousand words you don't get to kind of um draw out some of those uh, some of those strands which I think in in fiction uh, you know a novelist gets to do so I, I do like being able to be sort of more expansive about uh, you know other other things your eye picks up you start the the story the profile on Jackie Lambie with uh, you talk about the scar on her face mm. and it's remarkable because she doesn't often talk about it and it's an entree point for you that I thought was really interesting actually to, to use to use that almost like talking about the elephant in the room. Yeah, well, I, Jackie actually has been quite open about the fact that you know she she was 
she had a medical discharge um, from the army and she fell into a terrible depression and also drug and alcohol addiction. And after 10 years of really kind of like not doing much with her life, being on the couch kind of lit most of the day, she decided to end her life and she threw herself in front of a car. And that was, you know, after she survived this accident, which was sort of, you know, kind of miracle, she then decided to sober up and... And she thought, what do I really want to do? And she wanted to become a senator. Well, incredible that, incredible that she did. And, you know, she tells me that she went to a market and, and somebody gave her some affirmations, which she'd, she stood in the mirror, you know, in northwestern Tasmania and saying to herself, you're beautiful, I love you, you will become a senator. I mean, you know, incredible. Like I, want to, I need to sort of stand in the mirror and say, yeah, you're beautiful, I love you, you'll become a best-selling author. But, you know, anyway... But Jackie, Jackie writes about you know, about her suicide attempt in her autobiography, and she's you know spoken about it on on. She has, on but you got to it. You got you you you, you brought it into the sense of Jackie. And yeah, you brought, it, you brought the story alive. Well, I think she is really amazing because there aren't very many politicians who you know in the glare of of the public eye and with so much media scrutiny, particularly for women around how they appear, uh, who managed to actually transform. How many people say, I made a mistake? You know, so actually the way that she has morphed from a a Pauline Hanson-esque kind of, you know, nutbag really to someone who is very much a, a communitarian politician interested in how she can improve the lives of her constituents in, in Bernie and, and the, the surrounds. And, and increasing respect, it seems, from her parliamentary colleagues. You know, is, is it, that is an amazing story. Mm-hmm. It is an amazing because, story. Because, uh, you know, it just seems if, if more politicians were able to say, actually, I was wrong about that and I've thought more and, you know. Well, to be a better place. Yeah, wouldn't that be interesting? Would you read us a passage from your book? The copy that you have there is the paperback edition but I understand there's a beautiful hardcover with Anna Walker's amazing illustrations that have come has come out. That's right. It's it's very beautiful, and Anna has included gold in the um, black and white illustrations. So it's very very lovely. And a gold is a kind of you know it's a important color in in fairy stories, obviously, from Rumpelstiltskin oh, through to beautiful. Jack and the Beanstalk. The, the book is published by Scribner and look out for the hardcover edition. In the paperback, Anna's illustrations are beautiful, but I can imagine in the hardcover with the lovely stock, they must be singing even more with a bit of gold. Mm. So yeah, over to lovely. you, Chloe, for your reading. Thank you. I'm going to read from the beginning of the book. Every night when the light switched off, familiar objects in your room mutate. What daylight tames, the dark untames. Bookshelves, reading lamp, a dressing gown draped on the door all gather a silent force. The stillness feels alive, as if each thing is deciding how to behave. At first there's a thrill to this sudden chaos. You're not yet listening to the in and out of your own breathing, not yet decoding the noises in and outside the house. The shimmer of the dark makes climbing into bed feel less like surrendering, You've used all your wiles to put off this moment, and yet it turns out your limbs are heavy and the sheets are cool. You wait while we draw the curtains against the night or any dawn waking. 
You wait as we straighten you and your brother's bedclothes. Already he can't stop his eyelids from closing. You keep waiting and we reshelve the picture books. On these books' pages, life is reduced to its essential elements. The sun is a yellow ball in the sky, the road a black ribbon leading to green. The woods are reliably timbered, and within them a monster is a monster. No need to factor in his childhood. The stories are soothing because the turnings of the plot are so well-worn their surprises practised. Each night people are sad then happy. They get lost and found and return to their houses that have a front door between two windows. It doesn't occur to your father or me to tell you what's really happening here inside this house, why the force between objects is charged differently for us too. We don't want to let dread through the bedroom door and we don't want anything about these nights to change. All the most mundane tasks, toothbrushes cajoled into mouths, limbs into pyjamas, are suddenly revealed as precious, and if we diverge from the nightly routine, in any way, everything could break apart. Beautiful. Thank you, that's lovely. Before you leave us, we always ask our guests if they could tell us the old Desert Island marooned, what would I have in my suitcase? Yes, absolutely. And I wonder whether you might tell us also with the children's book or books whether there might have been something that you would love to have tucked away. Oh, well, I think for a a book that in my opinion is for for adults and children, but probably, you know, older children is, is Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea series. Oh gosh, it's read it. it. It's uh, really uh, do yourself a favor, as Molly Meldrum used to say. Like that is just so beautiful. You would love it. You'll love it. That's you know that's a must. Written when? Uh, Must have been written in the seventies, I think. I think the Wizard of Earthsea is the first. It's very very beautiful. I I um, recently picked up Janet Malcolm's The Journalist and the Murderer off the off the shelf again, and I just think you know that. Her charisma and and brilliance on the page is is so astonishing. So, you know, for those who haven't read that book and who who love Helen Garner's work and and some of Helen's acolytes, definitely that's a that's a great one. Hmm. Chloe, I've enjoyed our conversation so much. I think we need to have another five days. So, thank you very much for joining the I'm book gonna, pod. I've had a lovely time. I'm going to see you on the island. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. shopify.com work.